You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good morning, everyone. I have been wanting to do a a little follow-up stream to the, the Orange Curriculum Superstream that Monique and I did last week with Elisa and Natasha, but really focusing the conversation more on equipping. And I've entitled this stream, How to Stop Turning the Bible into Moral Tales. And I'm going to try to do three or four of these over the next few weeks. And my hope is that by doing a few of these all on a, in a similar vein, that I will actually be equipping you, uh, the Christian, the Christian parent, the kids, men, pastor, youth pastor, uh, whoever watches this stream. My hope is that you'll start to notice a pattern because rather than having you to be dependent on me for analysis, I would much rather train people to make the analysis for themselves. And I want to train you how to spot a very common error that people make when interpreting the Bible. And I am going to tell you up front that whenever I teach on this, uh, for the first little while, people feel highly uncomfortable because they realize that this error that I am teaching them to be able to spot, they start recognizing, oh, wait, this is how I have heard the Bible taught for most of my life. And that can be a little bit disorienting for them. It's especially disorienting if they feel like, wait, this is how I've taught the Bible to my children, or this is how my church teaches the Bible to my children. So I'm going to ask you to kind of be patient with yourself over the next few teachings as I, as I walk through this, because you have probably been conditioned to commit this error yourself. And this is a very, very common error. And in fact, uh, my friend Allison is watching the stream right now, and she has taken my class on Bible interpretation. And um, I know that this was something that when we were in that class together, she said, oh, wow, this is, I see this everywhere. And so this is what I want you to know is that this is not uncommon. But what we want to do in these teachings is unlearn something that many of us have been conditioned to do. And again, I realize this might this error might be something that your pastor commits. It might be something that you notice in, in the, the curriculum that your kids are engaging in, in, um, in their Sunday school classes and small groups. And so I want to train you how to spot this error and then begin to respond to it, okay? So if you're looking at this little slide here, this is a slide that I show in every one of my hermeneutics classes when I teach them. And so what I want to do is walk you through this slide so that you understand it. And if you can understand this concept, you will be a long ways toward better Bible interpretation. 
So what you want to ask is, what does the text mean? We don't want to ask, what does it mean to me? We want to ask, what does it mean for me? We want to ask, what does it mean? Okay, so that's our big question. Meaning for all books and communication comes from the author. So if you see on the left-hand side of your screen there, you'll see the author. Now, in the case of the Bible, there are actually two authors for every book of the Bible. There's the human author, which might be Moses or David or uh, St. Luke or St. Paul, okay? Um, and so this is, these are the human authors. But there's also this second author, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved through the human author to write the words of Holy Scripture. So um, when we're thinking about where meaning comes from, ultimately it comes from God, the Holy Spirit. But it also comes through the mind and the personality and uh, the, the grammar structure that is put together by the human author. That is where meaning comes from. Okay, so I want to lock that in your brain that when we're asking the question, what does the Bible mean? We're asking the question, what did the author mean by this? Okay. And so then if you, you move from left to right there, from author to text, you can see that, that the words of the human author are then preserved in Holy Scripture. And this would be true for any book. So, um, or any, I would say, you know, any piece of communication, um, it, it, the meaning comes from the author. In this case, it's preserved through the written communication. So the, the reader then reads that text and the original reader might be the first century church in Ephesus, or it might be the ancient Israelites right before they're going into the promised land. Um, so part of interpreting scripture is to try to ascertain what that original author meant studying the text and the grammar and the vocabulary and the structure through, through the written word, and then thinking about how would the original readers have understood what the author was saying, okay? So then we have the difficult task because we're, we're a few generations removed from that those original readers, and here we are sitting in modern 21st century America trying to make sense of the biblical text. Now, I will be the first to grant you that that is a hard task at times. As a family, we've been reading through the book of Leviticus uh, in our family devotions. There is some tough sledding in the book of Leviticus. But I'll bet it made perfect sense to those original readers as they were getting ready to go into the promised land. Okay. But it's tough for us. There's a lot of cultural distance between us in 21st century America and the original audience and the original author. So sometimes these, these matters are difficult. I do not pretend for one minute 
to have all the answers to every single verse in the Bible of what that meant to that original audience. But my task as the reader is to ask questions that, that, that explore what did the author mean? What I do not do is bring my cultural pre-understandings to the text and then use that as a lens through which I see and interpret the text. Because if it never meant that for the original authors, it cannot mean that for me. Okay. So I am making the bold claim that there is a meaning that resided in the mind of the author. And that is the meaning that we should work toward understanding and apprehending. Um, not always easy, but that is the goal. Okay. So I want you to understand that meaning comes from the author. And I'm going to illustrate this very simply. If you've ever been in an argument with somebody that you care about, how many times have you heard yourself say, that's not what I mean when the other person is repeating something back to you or making an accusation. When you say the words, that's not what I mean, what you are telling the other person is meaning comes from me, the author, my words have meaning, and you are not interpreting them correctly. So we have to, when we think about meaning, we have to think about it with the author in mind. Okay. So that's big picture. Um, what we have to do. All right. So that's kind of our, our grounding step, our principle of how to properly interpret the, the Bible. So our key question is what did this passage mean to the original author? Not what does the passage mean to me? Okay. That is not the question that we are asking. That is a, a very postmodern question that people bring to the text. So if you're ever sitting in a home Bible study and people go around the room and they read a verse and then they ask the question, well, let's have everybody share what this means to them. That is not sound Bible interpretation. That is not um, how this works. That that's not what we do. Okay. So we have to bear that in mind. I know that that's a common practice and I'm, I'm going against the stream, but I'm trying to help Christians understand the importance of where meaning comes from. And the way that we don't get to that is we do not sit around in a circle and all share what the Bible means to us. Interpretation is not a matter of private, subjective experience. We are looking for how do I get to the author's meaning, okay? So that's our big picture principle of where we start when we are interpreting the Bible. Okay, now with this very basic principle in place, we are now going to watch... Uh, some highlights from last Sunday's video. So this would have been four days ago for grades five and six from the orange curri curriculum. Now the theme for this month in orange 
and this is how they do it, is they have a word of the month, and then they have the lessons unfold using um, biblical stories to unfold or unpack that theme. Now, Orange Curriculum, just as a, a by way of a summary, is, is um, a values-driven curriculum. And what this means is that they want to use the Bible to teach children moral principles, okay, for life. So the moral principle or the value that they are teaching children this month, right now in March of 2022, is cooperation. So let's find out what the Orange Curriculum taught many of your children last week, uh, particularly if they were grades five and six. This is the video that they likely watched. And we are going to watch the Bible story part of it. Kellen! Hey, everyone! Are those oven mitts? Yeah, and they're stuck with super glue and I can't get them off. Nail polish remover. No, it's super glue. They won't come off. No, you can use nail polish remover to unstick the glue. I'll be right back. Should we? I'll catch him up. Do you have a Bible story for us today? I sure do. And here to help me tell it are the so-and-so show players. Our story today comes from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, and it's about a guy named Moses. Moses was the leader of the Israelites that helped lead them out of Egypt towards the land God promised them. Let my people go! That's the one. While they were traveling through the desert, the Israelites were attacked by one of their enemies, the Amalekites. The Amalekites just attacked us. They did. Find some soldiers and go fight them. I'm going to go stand on top of that hill. Yeah. I don't know how much help that's going to be. I'm going to be holding the walking stick that God gave me. Ooh, that is fancy. Thank you. So Joshua found some soldiers and went to fight the Amalekites. And Moses, he went to the top of the hill with his brother, Aaron, and a guy named Hur. Moses. Hur. Ah, Moses. Let's see how they're doing. Wait! Wait, they're winning again! Now they're losing. Wait, come on. No. You can do it. Harder. Fight. Moses realized that as long as he held his hands in the air, the Israelites were winning the battle. But every time he lowered his hands, the Amalekites began to win. God is giving us the victory. If I can hold my hands in the air, but my arms are just too tired. Moses, uh, uh, here, uh, uh, sit down. Uh, 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 why? Uh, yeah, we'll hold your arms up for you. You do that uh, for me? Uh, we can uh, do more together. Uh, 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 we can do this! Yeah! 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 yeah!
Okay, let me stop it for a minute. All right. What's your prediction? You can write it in the chat of where this is going. What do you think uh, if the theme of the month, the word of the month is, is cooperation, where do you think that this conversation is going based on what they have said so far? Um, so I'm just going to wait for a minute for people to type that in the chat, see if there's any predictors of where this is going to go. Um, in fact, what I'll do while, while you're thinking about that is I'm just going to back it up a few seconds. Hopefully YouTube doesn't freak out. And then we will just type that in the chat. Laura says, let's see here. Laura says, Moses and his pals feel victorious. Okay. Let's see what happens. So go ahead and type your mess, your, your answers in the chat. Where do you think this is going? What's going to happen? I can hold my hands in the air, but my arms are just too tired. Moses, uh, uh, here, uh, uh, sit down. Uh, 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 why? Yeah, we'll hold your arms up for you. You do that for me? We can do more together. <laughs> we can do this! Yeah! 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 the victory you helped me hold my arms up in the air and we were victorious yeah! Yeah! Oh! i'm fine hooray the end give it up for the so-and-so show players yeah great story kellen yeah it was cool that moses had friends to help him like that mm -hmm. yes Lots of cooperation in that story. Aaron and her, they helped Moses hold his arms up. The three of them helped Joshua and the Israelites. And God, well, he helped all of them win the battle. Awesome. Okay. So most of you, most of you are pretty, pretty smart. Alexa, I think. Um, all right. So let's look through some of your answers, some of your predictions. They win based on guys working together. Phyllis says, yeah. Alexa says, I can do all things through cooperation. Yes, that's good. Um, Moses received assistance from his companions, cooperation. Uh, one viewer said they were a little too distracted by the silliness. <laughs> There's a lot of silliness with the so-and-so players, and I'm not here to critique that. I have my own private opinions about that, but um, I'm just trying to focus on the message and whether or not that aligns up with the sound interpretive principles. Let's see here. We can do more together. Yes. And also God helped cooperate. Yes. Yes. So this is, uh, interesting because you, you guys, you did, you did a good job there. <laughs> good job class, because you, you saw the connection between the word of the month, which was cooperation and how they were using the Bible story. So the big idea that orange is teaching uh, students based on this passage, which we are going to look at in context in just a minute is basically we can do more together 
We can accomplish more together. We can help each other. Okay. So the question, going back to our first slide, that meaning comes from the author. So what's the question we need to ask in light of this is, is cooperation the principle that the author meant when he wrote this story? How would this story have been understood by the original audience? Okay, so that's the question that matters is what does this mean? Does it mean cooperation? Is that what God was trying to teach us about how we ought to conduct himself, conduct ourselves, okay? So we're going to look at, this is actually a story from Exodus chapter 17. So we're going to look at that story in context and see what this is. I'm going to blow it up a little bit so you can see it. So right before the story that we're going to read is the time when Moses um, gets water from the rock. And one of the, the key problems here is that they, they didn't, the, the people were complaining, you know, did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and, and livestock just to die of thirst out here in the wilderness. Now, keep in mind, they, they've, they haven't left Egypt that long ago. They haven't even gotten to Mount Sinai yet. That doesn't happen until Exodus chapter 20. So they, it, it's, it's been about, you know, in the text, it's been about five minutes since they left Egypt, but you know, thirst happens. I get that. And so they're starting to panic that there's not enough water. Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And so then the Lord tells Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders, take in your staff that you struck the Nile and go. And I, and I will stand there before you at the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa or Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So this is an important setup in the story of God defeating the Amalekites, because as you can see, they're, they're already nervous. They're, we're out here in the wilderness. We're very vulnerable. Who's going to fight for us? Who's going to help us? What is God trying to teach them? He's trying to teach them look, I will help you. I will provide food for you. I will provide water for you. And now the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to go to battle. Okay, so here we now meet the Amalekites, who may or may not look like stormtroopers. Um, so the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, again, this staff, here this is again. What do you think the people are supposed to think about Moses's staff? He got, he, he, he touched the Nile with it. The Nile became blood. He just used the staff to hit the rock 
and water came from the rock. So it seems like God is trying to build a confidence in the people that he is with them and he is working in and through his servant Moses and oftentimes through this through this staff. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. Whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up, held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other. So his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then they said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek uh, from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Okay, now I want you to type in the chat. What you think the point of this story is from God's point of view, from the author's point of view, what is the punchline in this story? Is it that God is trying to teach his people? What do you think the point of the story is? So I want you to, to write that in the chat and I'm going to leave uh, the text up on the screen here for you for a couple of more minutes while you're thinking about the answer. So when we're thinking about Exodus 17, go ahead. The Lord is my banner. The God is in control. Very good. In fact, I'll put these on the screen here. Yeah. God is in control. The Lord is my banner. Good. What else? Keep putting your answers in the chat. And so what I want you to, to start to notice in your minds is comparing and contrasting how the story was presented to the children. What was that big, big point? And how does that contrast with what scripture says? All right, now we're starting to get some more answers. To put their trust in God for all of their needs. Very good. Lori says, and then we have... Uh, Quilts, 54, God is their provision. Good. Kelly, or let's see, let me do Kelly's first. Kelly says, Israel is to obey and he will win the battle. He meaning God. Very good. Um, Rihanna says that the Lord is the people's protection and we should remember that always. Yeah. And Rihanna is like jumping forward to the application, but that's okay. Um, so we're just looking at, all right, what is it that the author wants us to know about this? And um, Allison says, God should be honored first and foremost. Good. Okay. So when we look at this one particular section, I want to call your attention to Um the hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. Now, technically, I don't remember the Amalekites being in heaven, but I don't think the Amalekites, you know, from a human point of view, were going up to heaven and 
doing battle against the throne of the Lord. But notice how from God's point of view, he sees an attack on his people as an attack on him. And then the response is the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So what God wants us to understand is that he's the hero of the story. Um, in fact, Barbara just nailed it right here in the chat. The Lord is my hero. Yeah, I would just rephrase that from the Israelites' standpoint is that God is the hero of the story. God will fight for his people, Israel, and an attack on them is an attack on him. And this is what God wants us to know from this story. So now let's begin to compare and contrast some things. Well, first, let me make a couple more points. Let's think about um, the Old Covenant stories. There's a lot of the stories in, in the Old Testament. Um, let's think about the very famous story of David and Goliath, okay? So how is that Bible story often preached? It's often preached that God will help you conquer the giants in your life, right? Okay, that's how it is preached. But if you were to go read the story of David and Goliath, you would see that same thread of, no, the Philistines are coming against the Most High God. And David goes out to battle against them because he knows that he has the covenant the God of the covenant on his side. So when we turn it into God will help you fight your giants, or let's use a New Testament example, Jesus calming the storm. How is that usually preached? Jesus will help you, how it will help calm the storms in your life. So what do we notice about that? It immediately flips it from being a historical narrative to be moral storytelling. I'm not supposed to get from this that it's a historical event. That's not enough. Rather, I need to somehow make it be about me. Conquering giants in my life, helping, teaching me about cooperation, calming the storms in my life. It's not enough that it's history. It's I have to turn it into moral storytelling. And the moral of the story is God wants to help us cooperate with each other. God will help me conquer the giants in my life. God will calm the storms in my life. Okay. This is profoundly dangerous. <laughs> and this is not how this works. This is not what we should be doing uh, or teaching our children to do. Okay. The point of historical narratives throughout the Bible is to teach us that God is the hero. God fights for his covenant people. It, in this story, in, in Exodus 17, it is to demonstrate the inability of the Hebrews to have success apart from God's strength. They can't find water in the wilderness. They can't get food and they can't slay their enemies, except God. This story has nothing to do with 
teaching people cooperation. Okay. What I also want you to know and to understand, you've got to break that neural pathway in your brain that tells you that every Bible passage must have an immediate application to you, especially when you're dealing with the historical portions of scripture. The purpose of these stories is to display God's covenant faithfulness. It is to make God the hero, okay? So when Jesus is calming the storm, the purpose of that story is to show that Jesus is God because only God can control the weather. Okay. So when we look at scripture, when we look at these historical stories, our first question should not be, well, what's the moral of this story? That's not the question. The question ought to be, what did this mean for that original audience? What is the purpose of the story that the author is trying to tell me? And most of the time, the purpose of the story is to make God the hero. It is to, to show us that, that he will fight for his people. Okay. So, okay. Rebecca is asking the great next question, which is actually the next thing in my notes. So that's fantastic. She's asking, so should we never bring up tangential moral teachings that are in the text, but not the main point? Are you saying we just need to teach the main point first and then the other things? That's a great question. So I want to share with you another slide from my hermeneutics class. Oh, first I want to show this comment. It's very important. People treat the Bible as Aesop's fables. Yes, Trimeris, you are right on the money. This is what this does. It trains our children to treat the Bible, the historical portions, the only possible relevance the historical portions could have to my life is that if I turn it into an Aesop's fable. You remember Aesop's fables? They're little, nice little stories that we might tell our kids to teach them values, okay? Um, the story of the dog and the bone with the bone, he walks over the bridge, he looks over the bridge and he sees in the, his reflection in the water only he doesn't know it's his reflection, he thinks it's another dog with another bone. And so he lets go of the bone in his mouth to grab that other dog's bone. And what happens? He loses the bone that he has. And the moral of the story is that we teach children, don't be greedy. Okay. That's Aesop's fables. And this type of teaching turns the Bible into Aesop's fables. It turns it into values-based education. That's not how this works. That is not the Bible. Now, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't teach us values, but that's not the primary or even the secondary thing that it does. It is to tell us a story of God's interactions and his salvation plan to rescue sinful humans. Okay, so now I'm going to share the, the slide from my Bible interpretation class. 
So when we look at scripture, and this goes right to your to your question, Rebecca, um, there's there's what I call levels of interpretation of the text. This top level is the purpose of the top level is to to retell and display the history of redemption. It is to tell the big story of the Bible from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, okay, in Revelation 22. It is to tell God's big story of his rescue program for humanity, okay? I have a whole class on this. It's called God's Big Story. And it focuses the whole class on this top level. And this, my friends, is the primary purpose of scripture is to tell us this top level. However, this is the level that is almost never taught in church, in sermons, in children's curriculum. I know there are exceptions, um, but this is, this is rare. But historically speaking, this was the purpose of the Bible, is to tell the history of redemption. That's the top level. Okay. So if you, you want to dig into that, I don't know if Laura or Allison are still on the stream. If you want to put a, a link to my, to my class on God's big story, you can do that. It's available as an on-demand class. Now it, it's videos. It, it has, you know, everything in that whole experience that you can, you can get. Um, now there's also this middle level of interpretation, and this is the historical level. This is the history of the Jews and, and how, how they came to be a people, the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the history of the covenants, um, the early church, and Jesus and the gospels, and all of these historical stories. This is the middle level of demonstrating in practical terms how God um, implemented that rescue program. And so it's doing it through all of these historical events, all right? So these two levels, top level, middle level, history of redemption at the top level, middle level, history of the Jews and the early church, this is the primary meaning of scripture. Can you start to appreciate why the question, what does this mean to me, is not actually a helpful question when it comes to interpreting the Bible. You have to ask a different question. You have to ask, what does this mean? Now, the lower level, as I call it, is moral application or examples. Are there places in scripture that ought to inspire us? Yes. When I am living in a culture that is hostile to my faith, Reading the book of Daniel inspires me. It teaches me, you know, how to stand strong in hostility. But when I try to get like three principles from a historical story of this is how God will show up or this is how it will unfold, that's, that's not how this works. That's, that's not what this is. Rather, it's just looking at a story that says this inspires me that I can stand strong in the middle of a hostile culture. So is there an appropriate time for a moral application or an inspirational example? Absolutely, there is. The problem is, there's two problems actually. 
One problem is that this is this is the land where 90% of our sermons dwell right now in American 21st century Christianity. It's at the moral example level. And we are, I am concerned about a generation of people who have been discipled to think that this is the primary purpose of scripture. This is how I read it. They have been trained to read the Bible as moral storytelling. The second concern I have about this is that many of the attempts to engage in moral storytelling have actually nothing to do with scripture. Like the video we just saw, the moral example I might get from that story, and I think this would even be a stretch, but I might be able to see like the importance of, of you know, trusting the Lord and the story of God fighting the Amalekites should inspire me to trust the Lord in my situation. I could see that. But to say that the point of the story is to teach me cooperation is to take a minor detail in the text and then to turn it into a moral principle. That's not helpful. And it's not in the text itself. Okay. So this is, we have got to, to have more diligence in our teaching to teach and train our people, our children at that top level, that that becomes the lens through which they are trained to understand scripture. The middle level is the history of how the top level has worked itself out in human history. But what we cannot do is spend 90 to 95% of our time down at the lower level and thinking we are teaching people the Bible. That, my friends, will not work. Okay, let me get out of that. All right, so I wanna, um, I've already alluded to this, but I wanna just really hit this hard now is, what will be the long-term impact? And you can write this in the chat because I genuinely want you to reflect on it for a minute. What will be the long-term impact of teaching the Bible this way as moral storytelling? What will be the long-term impact of, to children? How does it train them to view scripture? How does it train them to see the Bible? And I want you to put your um, your answers in the chat, because I genuinely want you to reflect on this very important question. What will be the long-term impact on children, on the emerging generation, when we teach the Bible as moral storytelling, somewhat like Aesop's fables? What, what will be the long-term impact? Well, how will they begin to see scripture? What thoughts do you have? Yeah, that's a good answer right here. Quilts 54, it reduces scriptures to stories rather than, than truth. Yeah, Leslie says it, it's just a story. What connections do you see this attitude and ways that we have discipled our young people that could be possibly contributing um, to deconstruction and the amount of young people um, turning away from their faith. 
Trimeris is it becomes a moral book for children like other moral books. It can become a self-help book. Absolutely. The Bible is a bunch of fairy tales, Lori says, that all of them that are all about them and not that the Bible is about God and historical truth. Yeah. Laura says that they see scripture as a good moral guidebook. We might say that they become to see it as values driven or the only valuable parts are the parts that help them be values driven. Okay, Priscilla, I am so glad you came to the conversation today. Children will become disillusioned with Christianity. Yeah, develop that. What kind of disillusionment will it lead to? I think this is very important for us to reflect on. Okay, Laura. Oh, hi, Laura Weimer. Their faith will deconstruct as soon as they don't experience the results they think they should that should happen based on the morals or the quid pro quo things that they are taught by these stories. Nailed it. Like really, this is, this is conditioning our children to think that, um, you know, well, God's always going to rescue you personally because God was interacting with the Hebrews this way. And it doesn't show an appreciation for God's covenants, how God works through covenants, and the the multi layers that are involved in that. Um, yes, let's see. God will always fix their problems. Good. 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 I think also another concern that I have about all of this is that we're seeing in the deconstruction movement is that they, they, they start looking at some of the harder stories, especially in the old Testament of like Joshua engaged in the conquest over the Canaanites. And they're like, there's no moral story here. This just looks wicked to me based on the world standards. And so we've trained them to look at scripture through a worldly lens. And then we get upset with them. Then when they're like, well, this doesn't fit my worldly lens of what is good. And so it makes perfect sense to me if we've trained them to always be at that lower level that the value of the Bible is to find a moral principle that it teaches you, they will not be able to make sense of scripture as a whole. If they don't understand how the genealogies are the thread that holds the Bible together, they actually don't have a robust understanding of the Bible. And this is something that I go over in great detail in my class, God's Big Story. Good. Here we go. Here's a great comment. The Bible is solely about morality. What happens when the morality of the culture opposes biblical values? Yes, it's a much more elegant way of saying what I was trying to say. The Bible is now cast aside as immoral. Very good. Um this this is and i think that this is a big problem i think this is a huge problem that uh, of uh why so many young people are leaving the faith is we have conditioned them to view the bible as moral storytelling and we've got to stop we have to stop um you know we 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 must do better we, we, I, I'm asking pastors to do better. I'm asking youth pastors to do better, kid men pastors to do, do better. We as parents have to do better in our teaching. But when 
when the vast majority of the instruction comes this way through this values-driven um, moral storytelling, this is presenting a skewed version of our faith. This is the funhouse mirror version of Christianity. It's something that sort of resembles our faith, but it is very, very distorted. And it is not surprising to me in the least why um, people are leaving the faith. Now, something that we do at the, the house church where we attend, and I like this, this model, is that the children stay with us all the time and they're part of the conversation. We've been reading through the book of Acts and the kids can ask questions and there's none of this moralizing, none of it. The, the, the discussion leader leads us through a conversation about the text, the context, the historical background. And we got eight-year-olds in there understanding this. Kids are capable of understanding these things. We do not have to reduce the scripture to moralizing in order to get kids engaged. We just don't. We just don't. I have taught these principles to children from grades five all the way to ages 85. Like there, th this is possible, this is doable, and it's, but it's a matter of your educational philosophy and how you are, what you think kids are capable of and what you think adults and women are capable of. So I think that um, when we turn the Bible into being a book about us, first and how it addresses my felt needs. And my friend Natasha Crane addressed us elegantly in the stream uh, on the, the stream that we did related to the orange curriculum, that there's a difference between felt needs and real needs. We as Christians must be Bereans and we must differentiate between felt needs and real needs. My kids might have a felt need that they want to eat <coughs> ice cream all day. That's a felt need. But I, as a parent, know that they have a real need that they got to get some vegetables in the mix. They got to get some protein in the mix. We have got to do better as Christians, as leaders, as pastors, as parents to meet ch children's real needs. We cannot continue to debase their souls by simply turning the Bible into moral story. We got to stop. We just, we have to stop. And I'm, I, I'm asking you to, to think about how you can start these conversations with the people in your life, how you can get equipped. I want to bring some resources to your attention. Um, if you want to know more about these issues, a really great place to start is uh, this book, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth um, by Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. This will get you started on a path of more properly understanding scripture. This book, I read this book when I was about 23 and it absolutely changed the lens that I had for in, in interpreting scripture. And it became my passion that, that I have done for, for, you know, almost 30 years now to properly teach people how to interpret the Bible. Okay. So go, go, Get this book, How to Read the Bible for All. Start with you. Start by you getting equipped. Uh, you can do that. I'm going to also, uh, I want to highlight 
classes that we have available for the, through the Center for Biblical Unity. Um, we have a great theology of race and ethnicity class. We look at a lot of scripture. Um, but I really want to uh, draw your attention to the how to really interpret the Bible class. We use that steward and fee book that I just showed you um, as the foundational textbook for that class. And it's on demand. You can do it anytime. You can do it at your own pace. I have all the, the assignments in there that you can work through. And um, all the lectures and the recordings are all in there. You can do that. And also then the great follow-up to that is a God's Big Story class, where we just try to walk you through that top level of interpretation of the history of redemption. If you've got those two classes under your belt, I mean, you you will be equipped. I had some great women's pastors in there and children's pastors, and they're like, man, this just changes how I'm going to teach. So there's some tools available through us. Um, there's books you can read. Uh, Monique and I did a podcast a couple years ago on how to interpret the Bible. So yes, everything is there. There And someone's asking, are these paid classes? Yes, these are paid classes. There's a nominal fee, but we also have free resources available through our podcasts. So try to make both available. This is a good comment here. I'm going to wrap it up here. Is When we present the Bible as just a moral uh, book to follow, it demotes the problem of sin. This is such an important point. Since emphasizing morality will give them a strong sense they can earn their salvation. It, it turns Christianity, it makes children vulnerable to thinking that what Christianity is really about is being a good person, being a nice person, cooperating. Um, you don't need God to cooperate. You don't need God for that. That's why we've got to get back to that top level. What is scripture about? What is our faith truly about? It is about God's rescue program. It's not about loving God and loving our neighbor. That's incomplete. That is an incomplete vision of our faith. Our faith is both the law, love God, love neighbor, and gospel. It's both. We need to help our children develop a whole worldview. It's a network of beliefs. Okay. So I hope you found this video helpful. I hope that you'll share it. I'll be back, um, God willing, next week with another analysis of another lesson. And again, my big point here is to train you to spot the error. And that's what this teaching is about, because I want you to start modeling for your children how to interpret the Bible. And I want to assure you, yes, children are capable of this. I've seen it. I've taught it. It, it can happen. It can work. But it starts with the adults in the equation getting clear on what needs to happen. And so that's really my hope with this series of teachings. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for watching. And uh, again, I hope you will share the stream with someone who needs it. And I want to leave you with my husband's comment as he does so well in our family, uh, leading us through uh, reading the Bible, to, you know, just making that commitment to read the Bible 30 minutes a day. Um, you know, we do it on our family Monday through Friday with our family. 
Uh, mornings work for us. Evenings might work for you. Figure out what works for you. Make the commitment and just tell the kids they got to come and discuss God's big story together. All right, my friends, thank you so much for watching. Uh, God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.